talk about future? Oh, did you want to? Well, let me let me just say this. Um, questions and answers. Uh, I want to answer all the questions that you guys have. So feel free to ask them. The rules are pretty simple. It should be a Bible question, um, something that kind of uh, relates to stuff we're talking about, or well, really any any Bible question is fine. But we're going to focus our attention on the questions that are about topics we've already covered, if there's a lot of the, the questions. But I'll answer any question that's related to the Bible um, that you give. And if it's a question that's regarding some topic that we're going to cover in the near future, then I'll just I'll hold that question and try to answer it on the night that we talk about that subject. So, for example, on uh, Friday night, we got a question about the rapture. And you can come closer. I'm not, I don't bite. Uh, we got a question about the rapture, and on, the, on that night, I thought, this would be a great question to answer, but let me hold off because we're going to be talking about the rapture this week. So instead of answering that question tonight, I'm going to answer it um, on that night. And if you still have that question, then it's okay. Write it down again and uh, let me know. I didn't, I didn't fully satisfy your, your interest. Um, so okay. one other rule that I wanted to tell you. The, the goal of this is that this seminar would be enjoyable for everybody. And so uh, a question that kind of points a finger at somebody or makes somebody feel uncomfortable, I'm just going to ignore those questions, if you don't mind. um, That way, we don't make anybody feel uncomfortable. Okay, fair enough. All right. So our first question this evening is, says, so many people read the Bible and come to different conclusions. How could we possibly hope to know what it actually says? So that's a really great question. There are tons and tons and tons of different ideas about what the Bible says. And, and I, I just would like to suggest that the majority of the time, the reasons that we come to these so varied conclusions is that we don't read the whole thing. We, we just piecemeal things. We take a, a tiny snippet of an idea here or a, a snatch of uh, a passage there, and we jump to conclusions. Um, and the... In Acts, there's a story where Paul warns the people about false teachers. And then he says about himself, in, it's in Acts 20, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare you the whole counsel of God. Not just part of it, but the whole counsel. And I think that's where we need to focus our attention is the big picture. And I think that sometimes we can feel like, oh, that's hard. The Bible's a huge book. But... Uh, well, we'll talk about it a little bit more tonight. But there, it's possible for a typical person to understand the Bible well. Um, there's a guy named Tyndale, and Tyndale translated the Bible. It, he was one of the first translators into English. And at the time, it was illegal to translate the Bible into the modern language. And so when he, when he translated the Bible, he got a lot of flack for it from the people who wanted the Bible to stay in Latin. But Tyndale's statement, when he said the reason he was translating the Bible, he said he wanted the plowman that was standing behind his horses, plowing the field, working the field, you know, the day laborer, to be able to understand the Bible as well as the guy standing in the pulpit. And I would say that I'm on the same page with Tyndale. I want us all to understand, and I think it's possible. Amen. Okay, our second question for this evening is, given the number of things Daniel gets right, It would seem that the book of Daniel must have actually been written after the events, and then maybe someone passed it off as being ancient. That's legitimate. Um, It's definitely something that people think. And, and, you know, if you read it after the events have happened, uh, who's to say that it was written before? Maybe it was a recent document. Well, um, I'll give you a few few different points on this one. 
to try to support what's going on. And thank you very much for thank your you. time. You can sit down if you want to. You don't have to stand there <laughs> <laughs> staring at me the whole time. Um, so let's just give the critics a bit of a, um, the benefit of the doubt for the moment. And let's say that Daniel was written about the time they say it was written, which would be about 150 B.C., 150 B.C. is uh, a lot, I mean, it's over 400 years after Daniel um, is supposed to have lived. But if we give them that benefit of the doubt, they still have to contend with the problem of prophetic insight. Because Daniel predicts, as we looked at a couple nights ago, the fall and, and, and uh, divisions of the Roman Empire. And then it predicts that they shall not cling one to another. And and there's a bunch of other things that Daniel predicts that we're going to get into um, in coming nights, but um, all kinds of things that are future to 150 B.C., including the very year that Jesus would come. We're going to cover that in, a, in another night. But we'll, when you look at that, you still have the problem that Daniel is predicting the future, that, that a God that knows the future exists. And, and I think usually the problem with um, people that want Daniel to be written later is that they just don't want to grapple with the realities of the things Daniel is saying. Um, Another point, uh, the authors of the New Testament, they believed in Daniel, in the authenticity and the truth of what Daniel was saying. For example, Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 told the disciples, let whoever reads Daniel understand. Um, Hebrews 11 describes Daniel as a real person who experienced and went through that lion's den experience that Daniel 6 talks about. So when you look at the Bible, it verifies the book of Daniel. And then there's, um, there's some historical evidence. The Qumran, um, it's, uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're found in this cave in Qumran, and lots and lots and lots of documents from the Old Testament were discovered there in about 150 B.C. And if Daniel was written in 150 B.C., you wouldn't find copies of Daniel in a cave hidden away for protection. This cave demonstrates that that these people, they, they thought these documents were really significant, that they were holy and inspired by God. And so Daniel is one of these documents. Not only that, a third point would be, or a fourth point rather, is that um, Daniel is one of the things that was translated in the second century BC in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if Daniel is translated in the second century, the mid-second century, then it seems like they've already established that this is a widely read book and well understood to be an inspired book Uh, a revelation from God. So, um, by the time the critics say that Daniel was written, Daniel was already widely known and widely read and included in Scripture. So, I think we can say, historically, it was much older than the critics want it to be. But I'll give you one other point from the Bible, and that's uh, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. He, He knew Daniel. Daniel was an old guy, Ezekiel a little younger, but he would have known Daniel. And Ezekiel mentions Daniel no less than three times in his book, the book of Ezekiel. And nobody's questioning the date of the writing of the book of Ezekiel. So I think the reason that we question the prophecies of Daniel or the writing of Daniel is because the prophecies of the Daniel point to a God who exists, a God who knows the future, and a God that uh, I have to grapple with personally. And so when we don't want to grapple with a God that knows the future and a God that has authority over our lives, we try to push the document that proves that out of the way.
So hopefully that answers those questions. If you have others, I really love answering questions. So please drop them in the box and, um, and we'll try to explore them from the Bible. Um, okay, so upcoming meetings. Tonight, Armageddon, we're going to look at some really cool Bible principles for understanding prophecy, and then we're going to apply them to Revelation chapter 16. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy where we end up in this one. Tomorrow night, Monday, we're going to study that subject that I said is so important, the man from Revelation, the man of Revelation. And uh, in this one, we're going we're to look at the central theme of all prophecy and the reason that prophecy exists. And uh, we're going to sp- focus on Revelation chapters 4 and 5 in that presentation. And uh, this one's fun because John actually is looking at a throne room um, vision of God. He sees God in his throne room. And so we're going to look at one of the most important questions in all of the universe on that night. So Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to skip. No meeting on that night. And just a reminder, on your way out, you're going to get a piece of paper that has a list of topics, a little bullets about what's, uh, what it's about, and it'll show you um, when those nights are that we're not going to be meeting. So Thursday night, we'll meet again, and we'll talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, and uh, this is one of those subjects that it might be good for you to read ahead. If you were to, you could read ahead on all of them if you want, but Revelation chapter 6 is the, the topic or the, the passage. Read through that and see what you think about it, and then we're going to explore that together on Thursday night. Who are these mysterious writers? When should we expect them? And, uh, and I think you're going to find some interesting things. A prophecy, a way of interpreting this prophecy that Christians have agreed on for 1,800 years, it's not a new idea that I'm going to bring up. I I try not to be a maverick when things are clear. Um, You don't need to go to something new when it's clearly demonstrated in the Bible. So Friday night, we're going to start the time of the end. Uh, One of the coolest prophecies in the Bible, one of the most amazing prophecies. Um, The Bible speaks about a time of the end. We're not going to set a date. We already talked about it last night. We don't do date setting. And uh, this is uh, one of the most important and unfortunately one of the most overlooked prophecies in the Bible. But it's so important that we're going to spend two nights on it. So Friday night we're going to start it, Saturday night we're going to finish the, um, the time of the end part two. And I think you're going to find this to be a lot, of, a lot of fun, very interesting. And then on Sunday night we're going to explore the second coming of Christ in a message I'm calling the appearing. And so we'll look at that and figure out the, well, I, I should say, there are so many different ideas on the second coming of Christ. Go to any bookstore and you'll find three or four different ideas um, in books that that bookstore is, is writing about. Go online and add a thousand more different ideas. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to push aside all of the theories and we're going to focus on the absolute, this is what the Bible says and you can't get around it, right? So we're going to focus on the absolutes. And, uh, and there's five different things that I think you'll find that are clearly in the Bible and that help to clear some of the, the ambiguity about the subject. So tonight's subject, Armageddon, um, we're going to be really practical and try to get some tools for understanding the Bible and understanding prophecy. And uh, so before we do, uh, as I, I like to do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for the privilege of opening the Bible, that we have the freedom to study this and read it together. Thank you for the people who are here tonight. I pray that you would uh, give us your spirits, help me to speak your words and uh, represent you well, and and help us all to listen well to what you say in the Bible. And um, 
I, I say, Lord, that we choose to follow you, and we ask that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Armageddon is a word you know. I don't have any doubt about that. Everybody in this room has heard it before, uh, but nobody quite knows what it means. It's got so many different ways that people look at it. Um, and it conjures up all kinds of images, especially because Hollywood just loves this word and this idea. Um, so what is Armageddon? That's where we want to end up tonight. Some people say that Armageddon is a great military conflict. It's going to take place when Russia comes in and, and has this, um, you know, teams up with Arab states and has this war against Israel. Um, and with recent activity in the Middle East and S Russia siding with Syria, a lot of people have been kind of bringing this idea up again and saying, oh, look, look what's going to happen. Well, okay, so that's one idea. Um, it's a popular idea, but it's not the only idea on the block. There are other people who say that it's going to be nuclear disaster. This one was really popular in the Cold War era. And it's kind of coming back a little bit because you've got these um, nation states that have uh, nuclear weapons that we're kind of not sure what they're going to do with them. And, uh, and, and maybe if um, you have somebody like Al-Qaeda or ISIS decide to get some uh, nuclear weapons, who knows what they might do with it? And, and then sudden, you know, apocalypse as a result. Well, that's one idea, but again, there's more. Um, some people think that it's overpopulation and the resulting fight over resources. We've got 7.3 billion people on the world right now, and uh, it took something like 100 years, I'm sorry, it took all of Earth's history <laughs> to reach a billion people, and then 100 years to reach 2 billion, and uh, well, it's uh, only taken a few years after that to add the next billion, we're at 7.3 and headed towards 11 by 2050, according to some people. Other scientists say, well, those numbers aren't exactly clear. Depends on what fertility rates are like. We might level off in the 8 or 9 billion range. But still, that's a lot of demand on resources. And maybe, maybe that overpopulation and the resulting conflict over resources will lead to the Armageddon, right? Well, other people say that Armageddon's a, a global pandemic, like others that we've seen, but worse. And, uh, and then you, this one's a funny one because Armageddon, I mean, not Armageddon, Hollywood loves this particular theory. Uh, you might not have seen them, but um, they, they've got all kinds of movies. 28 Days Later, The Stand, I Am Legend, and those are just the zombie movies. And it's always a war against, you know, those who've, who, who've not gotten the disease and are trying to stay away from it and those that have the disease and are, you know, trying to survive. Um, so some people say it's uh, when, when medicine fails us, um, then uh, Armageddon's going to be kind of the result of that. Some people say Armageddon's going to happen when an asteroid smashes into the earth and they point to these craters around and say, well, look, it's happened before. And so it's going to be some terrible catastrophe where um, just a few people are left after some um, apocalyptic um, asteroid hits. And uh, you remember that movie a few years ago? <laughs> Bruce Willis? It was just this exact thing. And they called it Armageddon. An asteroid is coming towards Earth, and they were trying to send people up to, like, blow this asteroid up and set it off the course and stuff. It's uh, quite interesting. Um, this could never happen, of course, right? In fact, 
Um, recently, scientists have ruled out one of the largest asteroids named Apophis, which happens to be the Egyptian god of death. Um, they named this thing after that. Um, nice of them. They thought it was going to hit the earth in 2029, but they recently said, no, no, it's, uh, we've, we've looked at the trajectory and it's not going to hit the earth at all. In fact, the earth is good for another hundred years. No way we're going to have any asteroids hit us. That, that sounds really good, except when you realize there's 25,000 near-Earth objects that, are, that intersect our orbit, and we only have identified and tracked the orbits of 8,000 of them. So two-thirds of the 25,000 objects are yet to be tracked. They're unknown entities. They might hit Earth. Who knows? Is it a possibility? Well, that's interesting. It's one theory on the block. Even if that doesn't hit the planet, people are pointing to climate change as another possible apocalyptic Armageddon. And, uh, and so they, they say that it's global warming or climate change, the polar caps melting, the sea rises, and all the conflict that's going to result from that and the weird stuff they describe. Um, everybody has a different opinion about what Armageddon is. I don't know if you have any of these opinions. I'm not trying to downplay any of those. What I, what I would like to do, though, is explore what does the Bible say? It's a word that comes from the Bible. We really should find out what the Bible says. Um, do you remember those people that uh, talked about the end of the world in 2012? The Mayan calendar supposedly um, predicted the end of the world because it, it's, it ended in uh, December 21, 2012. And uh, they kind of pointed to Nostradamus, who supposedly predicted that something really bad was going to happen that year. And of course, it didn't. <laughs> and if you go back to 1999, there were people predicting a catastrophe because of Y2K. Um, the clocks were going to change in 2000. My dad's a computer programmer, and for in, in the whole of the year 1999, he spent updating and changing the BIOS and background stuff and all the computers in his, in his company so that they wouldn't have any problems with billing and stuff. And I, I asked him, like, what would happen, you know, if, if they didn't get, you know, the the computers at the local dam or the, you know, the stock exchange or whatever um, updated to um, work with Y2K. And he said, oh, it'd be uncomfortable for a day or two, but we'd figure it out. <laughs> but people were, people were predicting the Armageddon as a result of Y2K. The dark ages, they said, would happen. Other people say Armageddon would be aliens invading our planet. Um, and uh, this goes back all the way to 1940 when you have the Battle of Los Angeles. Did you hear about that? The Battle of Los Angeles. It's when these really strange lights appeared over Los Angeles in 1940. And uh, the, the, the military actually fired at them. And could have been aliens. Probably it was the Japanese. Who knows? We, we've got all kinds of conspiracy theories. One that I, I enjoy. It's the, the theory that our government is uh, filled with reptilian creatures, aliens that have taken over our government are just waiting for the war of the worlds to happen. That's an exciting, uh, exciting idea. Everybody has a different opinion, and they can't all be right. It's impossible for them to all be right. So what is Armageddon? And, and a better question even, does it even matter? What's the point? Is it just a Hollywood idea? So if it didn't matter... Do you think that God would put it in the Bible? I think if, it, if God's got it in the Bible, it's probably something that we should and can understand. 
Um, so that's, that's kind of the direction we want to go. Um, and, and I want to point out something. God does not bring up problems in the Bible and just leave them there. And, and I guarantee that's where we end up. Every time we get a Hollywood movie about Armageddon, we're getting uh, the, the doom and gloom. And uh, of course, mankind rises up and tries to, you know, hopefully there's some redemption in there. But, but the Bible has a different story. God is frank with us. He tells us the real deal. Uh, but then He offers us hope. He extends a solution to the problem. And I think that's where prophecy always ends up. Prophecy always takes us through a problem into a solution. Uh, and, and I would say it this way, Revelation speaks peace. It's not apocalypse and chaos that are the end of Revelation. Revelation is a story of peace and hope and solutions. He's telling us what, he, what is going to happen ahead of time because He cares about us. And He somehow, the, the books about prophecy tend to miss that. So for hundreds, uh, even thousands of years, there was a widespread agreement about what Revelation, what this specific prophecy was really about. And, and then it's only been in the last 160 years or so that we've had so much confusion about these different prophecies. And uh, we started, the Christian world kind of started adopting these divergent views from where the church had been for so long. Now, a question that you have to ask is, if there's so many different ideas, can it really be that important? Or you might even ask, is it too complicated for most people to understand? Is that the reason we have so many different views on this? And, and I'd like to suggest it is important, first of all. It's important because the subject of prophecy comes up, um, well, one out of eight verses in the New Testament talks about the second coming or alludes to the second coming of Jesus. One in eight, that's a significant number. Uh, Dwight Moody, a famous preacher from years ago, he did a survey of the Bible looking at uh, all this stuff that talks about the second coming of Christ, and he found more than 2,500 references to the second coming throughout the Bible. It's a significant point in the Bible. In fact, it is the ultimate climax. The thing the whole Bible is pointing to is the second coming of Jesus. So, is it important? Should we understand this stuff? Yes, I think we should. Um, but so many people, they read Bible prophecy, and it's kind of like they lose their minds. Have you ever seen this happen, where somebody gets into prophecy, and it's just kind of like, whoa, where, where'd you go there? And in fact, um, there's a guy named Billy Graham. In his book, Just As I Am, uh, an autobiography, he wrote about his childhood, having his mom, or seeing his mom, reading the book of Revelation. And she's exploring this book, and, and the preacher hears that she's reading the book of Revelation. And so he quickly comes to, um, to see her and have one of those pastoral visits. Um, he says, Mrs. Graham, why in the world are you reading that book? Well, it's because it describes the return of Jesus, and I, when I read it, it gives me a lot of hope, she says. Well, I want you to stop, Mrs. Graham. Whatever for, she asks. Well, it's because if you keep reading this book, you'll go crazy. <laughs> I mean, why would he say that? Because we all kind of know those people who have gone into that crazy zone reading prophecy. But let me ask you, is it the Bible that causes people to go crazy? Or were they maybe a little bit crazy before they started reading Revelation, you know? Um, 
And, and you think about it, people like David Koresh, he reads the book of Revelation and goes crazy. But that, is that the book of Revelation's fault? Is that the Bible's fault? No. Uh, that he, he, had, uh, he had his own problems. And then there's Charlie Manson back in 1969. He wanted to start this race war. That's why he killed um, Sharon Tate. And, and obviously, the guy was nuts. Is, is the problem the Bible or is the problem the guy who's reading it? Um, so, I think, I think that the Bible really wants us to understand it, and I think ordinary people um, can understand Bible prophecy and make sense of it and, and, and really gain a blessing from it. And in fact, just to point this out, it's not just Christians who, who have problems with nutty people, <laughs> because everybody in all kinds of cultures um, knows somebody who, who went a little crazy. Um, some people point to, in fact, atheists often point to Christianity and religion, bad religion, as the source of all kinds of wars. But I want to point out that more people have died as a result of wars committed by people who are atheists or who have rejected God than by any the Christians started. Uh, for example, you have Stalin killed millions, Hitler killed millions, Pol Pot killed about a million people, and, and they didn't use the Bible to do it. So we don't need the Bible to have people go crazy. Does that, does that make sense? Studying prophecy doesn't make you go crazy. It is a safe thing to explore these subjects. I just want to assure you of that. Now, pay, pay attention to this verse. This is something that, that Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. Notice these three things. He says, blessed are you if you do these three things. Read. And, and that word read, it's um, in the context of, of John. Remember back then they wrote things out by hand. If you wanted to copy something, you copied it by hand. And so there weren't a lot of copies. Um, we have lots of Bibles in here and there's several extra if you need one. But if you were in an early Christian church, you wouldn't have a Bible in your hand. The letter of Revelation would have been read from the front, and you would have listened. So he says, blessed are those who read. So like the, the reading, the public reading of this book, and blessed are those who hear. And, and hear isn't just like, you know, letting it bounce off your eardrums. The intention here is that, that you would hear like your mom wants you to hear, <laughs> You know, are you hearing me? You know what she means. <laughs> She's not wanting you to just, you know, have it pass through your eardrums. She wants you to also apply what she's telling you to do. And that's the same idea in the Greek word here um, in, this, in this passage. Are you hearing the words? And then the, the, the keeping it, that's the application. Are you applying it to your lives? So God intends, us, intends for us to read it, to hear it, understand it. And, and to apply it to our experience. So, does this sound like something that God doesn't want you to read? No, this is something that God really wants you to engage with. He's excited about it. And some people say, say that this is a sealed book. It's impossible to understand it because Revelation has been sealed. So, I, I need to take you to the end of Revelation to show you what the Bible says, because that's our theme. What does the Bible say? Well, in Revelation 22.10, the Bible says, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Don't close it up. Don't hide it. Don't seal it. This is the revelation of God, the revealing of His plan. 
So has God sealed the book of Revelation? Yes or no? No, he has not. And, and then you just have to look at the name. The, the Greek word for the name of Revelation is the apocalypsis. Apocalypsis, today we think of it as like terrible tragedy, but that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word literally means uncovering or like if you had a present and it was wrapped, the unwrapping. <laughs> so Christmas is the apocalypse. Oh, no, that wasn't as funny as I thought it might be. <laughs> it's not the sealing or the covering up. It's the uncovering, the unsealing. That's what the whole book is about. So, yes, Revelation is kind of like Christmas. You get to open it up. You get to explore it and understand it. And there's no question God intends for us to understand it. He intends for it to make sense to us. So, Jesus said this to his disciples uh, about the last day events. Therefore, when you see the, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then he, he makes this statement, whoever reads, let him understand. And this is important because Jesus has just said in Matthew 24, just a few verses earlier, that there would be people who want to deceive. And so now he's saying, read and understand. And, and this is, these are completely opposed ideas. Understanding keeps you from deception. God wants us to understand these prophecies. Whoever reads, let him understand. So, Jesus expects us to understand the whole book. The name is revealing, uncovering. I think the reason that it's hard for us to understand these subjects isn't because the Bible doesn't want us to understand. It's because of how we go about it. Um, It's hard for most of us to understand these things because the church as a whole has lost track of the basic principles of understanding Bible prophecy. And, and so we end up on these weird tracks. And, and maybe it's because we're this consumer-based um, environment. The 21st century is about consuming things. And so we come to church and we listen to the preacher talk and it's so wonderful. Like, he's such a good preacher. People don't generally say that about me, but, you know, other preachers. Um, and, and, you know, he's such a good preacher. I'm so glad that I have this preacher. He, he, he really opens the word to me. But we don't tend to have that deep personal study of God's Word that maybe Christians 150 or 200 years ago were experiencing. And maybe that's the reason that we've lost track of some of these principles. I don't know. But I do know this. As we get closer to the second coming, uh, it's going to be more and more important for us to do what the Bible says, read and understand. And understanding Bible prophecy is, according to Jesus, going to keep us from deception. So this is an important thing that we're, we're exploring. Tonight, I'd like to explore a few principles, and then we're going to dive into Revelation chapter 16. Principle number one is that we, um, we really need to make an effort to explore the history surrounding the passage. Uh, for example, when you read Matthew 24, it's also helpful if you understand a tiny bit of what happens just a few years later in AD 70. I told you a bit of that story before, but just the destruction of Jerusalem is a direct fulfillment of what Jesus says in Matthew 24. So understanding a tiny bit of history is a really helpful thing. And most of that history we get in a general survey of history class sometime in school. Um, You you hear about people like Napoleon and Charlemagne. These aren't um, crazy figures that are hidden in, in, in history that you have to really dig to find. You don't have to be a historian in order to understand this, but grasping a a tiny bit of history can be helpful. Um, Principle number two, you really want to read 
in context. What comes before and what comes after the passage that, you're, that you have a question about? But, but not just that, you need to understand the broader context of the Bible. And, and it's when we take things out of context that we really get into trouble. Um, have you ever heard a soundbite from a, a politician? Uh, just, you know, 15 words or less, not even a whole sentence sometimes, in a news broadcast. And, and you kind of get this angst in, your, in your, your belly for what this person has said. What a horrible person they are. Have you ever done that? Be honest, be honest. Okay, <laughs> we've got a, a bunch of people here that are really nice. Um, <laughs> so I, I've had this experience where I go and I see this or hear this little snippet, and then I go back and I want to I listen to it in its broader context. So I listen to the whole thing, or at least a part of, a larger part of that, that message that the politician was giving. And what I find is what the politician was trying to say isn't fully being represented in the snippet that was shared in news. Whenever we take something out of context, we totally change its meaning. Well, at least that's the potential. So let me give you an example. In the Bible, there's a verse. It's true. It it, it actually happened in history. And here's what it says. Judas went out and hung himself. It's a, a factual statement. There's another place in the Bible where Jesus said, go thou and do thou likewise. Now, if you take those two passages rip them from their context, put them together, you might come up with a completely erroneous meaning of Scripture, and somebody's probably going to get hurt. And that's what happens when we don't read the Bible in its context. We, we take things out of context, and we come up with wrong conclusions. Um, so, for example, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. And principle number three, um, not only do you need to read the passage context the little bit before, the little bit after, but you need to read the whole chapter. You need to read the whole book, and you need to read the whole Bible. The more of the Bible that you read, the better you can understand some of these passages. And if your interpretation is right, then it's going to agree with other writers in the rest of the Bible. Uh, It's an amazing book, honestly. There's nothing like it in all of the world. The Bible has 40 different authors. It's written over a period of 1,500 years, and there is an incredible amount of consistency and interplay between these, these writers, and, and they don't disagree with each other. We, we can, if you have something in the Bible that you feel like, wait, this is a contradiction, this guy says this and this guy says the other thing, uh, put it in the question box. I would love to explore one of those with you and show you how the Bible actually has consistency and agreement on every one of these subjects. So, it boils down to this. Read the whole Bible. Now, now you might be seeing, saying, that's impossible. That's so hard. No, it's not. My wife loves to read, and she might take two nights, staying up a little bit later than she should. <laughs> She's in there. Um, she might take a couple nights and read a novel thousands and thousands of words, 500 pages long, a couple of nights. When you're interested in something, it doesn't take long. But even if you're not extremely interested in, you know, like the begats and things like that, you can still, an average person, read the Bible through in a year or less than a year with just 15 minutes of time a day. And that will give you a huge amount of context that will help you interpret different things in the Bible. And, it, and it's not just those of us who um, have some maturity that can do this. My eight-year-old daughter has chosen to read through the Bible, and she's, she's doing it. And one day she told me, Dad, uh, she, she has the International Children's Bible, 
And so it doesn't say, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, um, but, but she used whatever the word it uses in there. And she's like, Dad, those are kind of boring. <laughs> They're hard to read. I was like, it's okay if you skip those. <laughs> um, but she's reading through the Bible. It's not hard to do. An average, ordinary, normal person, even somebody who doesn't like reading as much as my wife, can read the Bible through and can understand it. So let me give you an example of what happens when you don't read in context. Let's say that I was writing a letter to Joelle, and I'm away from her for some reason, and I I, I write this letter. Dear Joelle, I wanted to see you today. I'm so irritated because my car broke down at 1 p.m., and now I I will not see you. Love, Jason. So this is is my letter to her, but I, I can't see her. I've got to deal with the car, but I hand this letter to a kid to take to my wife, and he drops it in the puddle, smears some letters, and what's left over when he finally gets it to Joelle is this. Dear Joelle, I wanted to see you today. I'm so irritated at you. Jason, completely different message. This is the problem we face. It changes the meaning when we take something out of context. So if you don't read the whole thing, you're going to get the wrong idea. So let me just ask you this simple question. If you have an idea about what the Bible says, and you haven't read the Bible in its context, can you be confident with your conclusions? And, and I would even go so far as to say, maybe you have read the Bible in its context. If you don't remember everything the Bible says, um, should you be uh, at least humble about your conclusions? Yeah, I want to be humble, and I'm, I'm willing for you to teach me. If you've got something that, that you know that I don't, please go ahead and share it with me. I'd love to learn. But um, we all need to have a certain humility when we approach the subject of the Bible and interpreting it. I'm going to share with you something that I think is accurate, biblical, and straight from God's Word. And humbly, I want to say that, that uh, I think that this is a beautiful representation of Christ. Uh, but I don't want to say it so confidently that I would suggest that there is no way that I could be wrong. That would be hubris, a little bit of uh, too much arrogance on my part. So I don't want to do that. And I think all of us need to approach God's Word with the same kind of humility, willingness to learn. And I think people like Richard Dawkins, um, that, uh, the, the atheist that's um, so hard against Christianity, he takes the Bible and just looks at small parts of it. And he, he admittedly looks at some challenging parts, things about war and violence. And as a result, he gets a small part of the story of God, just a little part. And unfortunately, it tells a story that isn't accurate. Uh, you need a bigger context in order to understand the things that he's talking about. But he, he rips at Christianity based on slivers of the story. We don't need part of the story. Not tonight, not any time we study the Bible. We need the whole story. We need to look at the broad context of the Bible. Um, and then look at this verse, Mark sixteen eighteen. Th- this is an example. A guy read this, um, 1910, a preacher named George Hensley, he read this verse and he came to some interesting conclusions. It says, they shall take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, listen, if you're on a ministry for me and uh, I'm going to protect you. And if you get bit by a, a snake, then you're going you're gonna to live. And this actually happened in Acts. Paul was on a missionary journey and he ends up 
um, shipwrecked on an island called Malta, and he's throwing sticks uh, in the dark. He's throwing sticks into a fire to dry off and, and uh, help other people and stuff, and, and a snake happens to come from the pile of sticks, and it bites him, and, and it was a poisonous snake. He gets it off, throws it into the fire, and everybody's amazed because he doesn't die. In fact, the local people, they start to worship him as a god, and he's like, no, 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 let me tell you the real story, and he points back to what Jesus said in this verse. But this is not how George Hensley took the the passage. He read, they shall take up serpents and said, this must be God's mandate. It's a command. And so he brought in a box of snakes, poisonous snakes, uh, to his assembly. And that began the snake handlers movement. (laughs) And every year, a few people die or get hurt because of this Thing. And is it because they lack faith, like Hensley would like to suggest? Or is it because Hensley took the Bible out of context and concluded something that God never intended? I think, I think he got it out of context. Well, notice what Jesus says to the devil. The devil had this interaction with Jesus. Um, they w- he went to the desert, was there 40 days, and the devil meets him like a, a shining angel, and, and he tempts him, you know, eat this bread. And when Jesus said no, he said, you know what, the Bible says, and he quoted a passage of the Bible. Does the Bible, or does Satan know the Bible? No. I bet he's read it more than all of us combined. He knows what the Bible says. So he quotes the Bible, a passage from Psalms, and, uh, and, he, and he says, uh, just jump off of, of the, the temple here and the angels will catch you. The Bible says so. And Jesus replied, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus puts the, the passage that Satan took out of context and put it back in context, and he gave a clear distinction between faith and presumption. Faith, trusting God to, to do what he said, and presumption, putting yourself in harm's way and, and hoping God will do something. Does this make sense? Okay, good. Um, so let me show you one other principle that we can find in the book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is dealing with a rebellious Israel, and he describes how God chooses to speak to his people. And back in verse 9, he says, Whom shall I teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then this is his explanation in verse 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little there a little. So the basic principle here is that God, God's going to give you information and truth, but He doesn't give it all at once. He doesn't dump truck on you. You know, it's not like a big dump truck backs up, you know, of knowledge backs up to you and pours it into your head. That's not how God reveals Himself. He reveals Himself bite by bite, little bit by little bit, line by line, precept by precept, here a little, there a little. It's like a, like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you throw out the pieces of your puzzle on the, on the table, and you have to do a little bit of work to assemble them. And you don't really see the picture until you've got it all put together. And, and so in, in the case of the Bible, before you make a, a conclusion, a decision, a, a confident, I know what the Bible is saying about this, um, take a, a survey of the whole book and, and explore what the Bible is saying and put those jigsaw pieces together and you're gonna see a beautiful picture. Okay, so um, this, uh, th- this key is uh, really going to make a difference. It's one of the most important principles that I can share with you tonight. 
roughly two-thirds of the book of Revelation is language that John borrows from the Old Testament. So if we want to understand what John is saying in Revelation, we have to go back and find out where that, that phrasing is, where those words are used in the Old Testament, and we'll find explanations, and we're going to do that tonight. That's going to be fun. Um, and, and so if you read something in Revelation that just doesn't make sense, um, do a search throughout the rest of the Bible. And today it's super easy. Blueletterbible.com is a really great one. Um, if you go there, they've got lots of good tools. But you can do a search for this particular phrase, and you'll find uh, that phrase or something very similar to it in maybe uh, half a dozen other places. And those other places will help you understand what Revelation is saying. And this is true particularly in the book of Daniel, where Revelation and Daniel have some very similar imagery. And if we want to understand the imagery in Revelation, we have to compare it to the same images in Daniel. Okay, so quickly, the principles we've learned, read the Bible, the whole Bible, the whole chapter, get the context, um, and let the Bible explain itself, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Let Revelation, uh, or let the Old Testament tell you what Revelation means. Okay, so now we're going to apply these principles to the subject of Armageddon. Uh, If you've got your Bible, now's a good time. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Keep your finger there. We're going to We're going to read through this very carefully. Revelation chapter 16. And uh, verse 12 is where we're going to start. And uh, you might have noticed the last last, uh, couple nights, I've taken a piece of something, right? We we studied a piece of a chapter in Daniel. We studied um, a little bit of this other chapter in Matthew. We didn't, we didn't look at every single thing. So I hope that you're going to go back and read around what I, re- what I presented. And this one, we're at the sixth angel. So there's five before, and there's lots of other things to explore in this. We're not going to apply it to everything right now. We're going to try to do just a little bit at a time, if that's all right. Um, so I'm starting in verse 12. And it says this, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And then I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So I want you to remember these three characters. Who are they? The the dragon, the, the beast, and the false prophet. These, these uh, three um, individuals, we'll say, are going to come back again and again in the book of Revelation. So keep those in the back of your mind. And then verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that they may not go out naked and, and be seen exposed. Uh, let's stop at that idea, thief. It, it's, uh, I am coming like a thief. Who comes like a thief in the Bible? Ah. So the Bible says that Jesus comes like a thief. It's a reference to the second coming. This is a, something in here is pointing out Jesus. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, And then he says, and they assembled them in the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. So there you have it. That's Armageddon. That's the the passage in Revelation. Um, Let's first of all assemble what we know. We know that um, 
that there's going to be a global spiritual deception because it says the spirits of demons go into the whole world performing miraculous signs. So there's a deception that's going on. It, it mentions that um, this kings who come from the east, that's part of the story. It mentions the Euphrates River drying up. Um, and uh, it also says that uh, this person comes as a thief. And we know from the rest of the Bible, specifically in uh, Matthew, that Jesus says he comes as a thief. That's the second coming. And then there's this strange word, Armageddon. Um, for some reason, in this, just this word, John switches from Greek to Hebrew, and he uses a Hebrew word for Armageddon, not a Greek word. And, and so that's uh, an interesting thing. And actually, let's, let's hone in on that word for a moment. The word is Har-Mageddon. Har-Mageddon is a, it's a, what do you call it? not a complex word. Anyway, it's one of those words that's got two words, a compound word. It's two words smashed together. Har is mountain, and Megiddo is a valley in, uh, in Israel. So, in northern Israel, if you look um, in, on the map that's on the screen, almost to the top middle, uh, there's this kind of little dip between the mountains there, and you can see that's the, the valley of Megiddo. So why would John mention the mountain of Megiddo? Um, I'm going to show you something important. If you look here, this is the valley of Megiddo, and surrounding the valley of Megiddo, it's just a 20-mile-long valley, and there are three mountains, kind of like, well, kind of like Bonner's Ferry has various mountains around it. And, and there's, there's all these uh, different high points, but we live in the valley, most of us, or on the sides of the hills. So this is kind of where Israel is. They've got this valley, and lots of stuff happens in this valley. But the, the three mountains are really interesting. Um, you've got Carmel to the north, which is where Elijah famously contested the priests of Baal, and all Israel, they were worshiping pagan gods. And, uh, and so the prophet Elijah calls them to, the Mount, to Mount Carmel and, and, and asks them to make a decision. It's a showdown about faith. And, and whether they would follow the Bible, what God had revealed or not. And then to the southeast, you've got Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is where um, Jesus had that experience where he met Elijah and, uh, and Moses on the mountain. And Elijah, having not died but gone to heaven, Moses having died but been resurrected and gone to heaven, and then Jesus was transfigured. And so we call it the Mount of Transfiguration because he became in his glorious self, like he would be one day at the second coming. And so this little picture of Jesus on the mountain, Mount Tabor, is a picture of the second coming. Those who are alive and remain are represented by um, Elijah, uh, and, and they see Jesus when they're alive. And then those who have died and are resurrected are represented by Moses, a picture of the second coming. And then the third mountain is Mount Gilboa. And Mount Gilboa is the place where Saul went to meet a lady, um, a medium, a spirit medium, against God's instructions, um, and, and called somebody back from the dead. We'll talk about that another night. But they called somebody back from the dead, and he's, he's experimenting and playing with the spirits of demons. And so we have these three mountains. And historically speaking, the Valley of Megiddo is a really important place. Lots of interesting things happen there. But it's also the crossroads of the world. If you want to get someplace um, from in the ancient world, 
you want to go down to Egypt, or you want to go out to, the, to Arabia, you're going to end up going through the Valley of Megiddo at some point. And as a result, there's a lot of wars that are fought in this place. Lots of armies met here. Lots of violence happened here. For example, uh, Deborah and Barak defeated the armies of Sisera in this valley. It was also here that Joshua defeated the kings of Canaan. And uh, there's, uh, th- these are real battles, real armies, just to be clear. It was also the place where people fought spiritual wars. Um, it was a place where Endor was, and that's a place on the eastern end of the valley, like I mentioned, where Saul met that spirit medium. Um, and it was on the, the north side on Mount Carmel where Elijah has this spiritual battle with the, the priests of Baal. So Megiddo is a place of conflict, and it's also a place where spiritual decisions are happening. And I think this, this is why John um, points to this place in Revelation. God's trying to tell us something. He's trying to open our eyes to stuff that's already happened in, in the Bible and, and apply that to our experience today. So we're going we're gonna to try to compile some evidence tonight and figure out what in the Old Testament is John referring to and how does that apply to us? So I want to take you back 2,500 years ago to a place in Babylon, but not Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom tonight. We're going to go to his grandson, Belshazzar, and a party that he was throwing. Um, And and just so you know, Nebuchadnezzar is a guy who follows God eventually. Belshazzar, not so much. He's a slacker. He's selfish. He's self-absorbed, and he does not believe in the God of Israel. And we know this from Daniel chapter 4. And uh, if you go Daniel chapter 4 and then 5. And so if you go to Daniel chapter 5, you'll find this guy. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of, of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. He's throwing a party. And lots of kings throw parties, so it's not that big of a deal, except that, um, well, there is an army from the east. Underscore that word. Didn't we see that in Revelation? An army from the east? Now, this isn't going to be some weird, like, oh, he found this in the Old Testament and just, you know, randomly applied it. We're going we're gonna to check a few boxes, not just this one. But an army from the east comes and is camped outside this city, Babylon. And you've already heard about this from Daniel chapter 2. Um, Cyrus is the king of, or, or the leader of the army of, of what nation? Persia. It's the chest and arms of silver that's defeating the head of, of gold, right? This is the Medes and the Persians defeating Babylon. And he comes out um, to, the, um, to the outskirts of Babylon, and, and Belshazzar is so arrogant, he's like, defeat Babylon? That's impossible. We've got lots of food. In fact, they say, um, some historical records say that they were, they were throwing food over the walls at the Persians um, and uh, laughing at them. Like, fine, you know, come, come and besiege us. We'll be fine. You'll leave long before we are out of food. I mean, it was a, a city that had three walls. They were really tall. It was impregnable, thought to be impregnable. And, uh, and so what Belshazzar, Belshazzar does is he, 
he communicates to the city that everything's fine. And instead of marshalling his armies, he goes and throws a party and gets all his leaders to go. And uh, they're, just, they're just not worried at all. But, and, and I, I should say, to make a point, he asks his, his uh, leaders to go get all the vessels um, from the, that, that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And, and he's saying, look, our gods are better than your Mede and Persian gods. We're going to be fine in here. And so they give praise to their gods of gold and silver and, and, uh, and stone and wood. Um, and they drink um, out of these cups. And then suddenly the room falls quiet because everybody sees this bloodless, um, bodiless hand writing on the wall. I mean, th- this, is, this is not a normal experience. If you and I had some hand writing on the wall over there, we would have emotions that would come up inside us. The Bible says that Belshazzar was so scared that he messed his pants. If you read in the King James Version, it says that the, his loins were loosed. He was afraid when he saw this hand. And, and what does it write? It writes, mene, mene, tekel you farsen. And so he's like, I need to understand this. And, and to be clear, it's not some strange thing. These are actual words that somebody should understand. Um, they were used in commerce at the time. So it's not something that would have been ununderstandable. But uh, he calls for the Chaldeans, and he should have known. Nebuchadnezzar had proved that those guys weren't that smart. Um, so when they came, um, they wisely said even though they weren't that smart, but they wisely said, we have no idea how to interpret this. And somebody said, happened to be his grandmother, um, came into the party and said, heard the commotion and said, "Um, I know of somebody. There was a guy that Nebuchadnezzar knew could translate these kind of things. Go send for Daniel. And so he sends somebody to get Daniel. And uh, Daniel comes in and uh, he says, you know, I, I understand that you helped my grandfather. Um, can you tell me what this means? And of course, he, he does. And, and here's what he says. He says, it means numbered, numbered. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So the dream that, Dan, that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue was right. The head of gold was going to pass away. The chest and arms of silver was going to come. And it didn't matter that Babylon was impregnable. That was an insignificant issue for God. In fact, uh, if you, if you want to know uh, kind of what's going on with this, well, actually, before I tell you that story, just think about this idea. You're weighed in the balances. Uh, Belshazzar, he was, he was a guy that thought everything was going to be just fine. And we can be lulled into that sense in our own experience. We can hide ourselves from other people. Um, we can hide ourselves from, from the church. Uh, we can hide ourselves sometimes from our spouses. But I guarantee you will not hide yourself from God. He knows who you are in your heart. And, and there will be a time when He weighs you in the balances. And, and what is He going to weigh you against? We'll explore that another time. The judgment is an interesting subject, and I want to I tell you it's, it's a hopeful subject. So don't, you don't need to be afraid of it. But um, he's going to weigh you in the balances. 
And, and at that point, he's going to weigh the actual you, the real you, not the, not the facade that we put on for the public, but the real inside you. And the question is, what is he going to find? Is he going to find, like Belshazzar, that, you've, that you're found wanting? Well, um, so the story goes, uh, Cyrus is on his way to Babylon, and he's thinking about the problem. Babylon is not defeatable. How am I going to solve that problem? And uh, uh, an inspiration comes to him after his horse drowns in the, uh, the Gendes River. He was so mad that his horse drowned that he commanded his soldiers to dig channels and divert the river away from the riverbed. And by the time they dug about 180 channels, the river was about ankle deep. And he, he says, now my grandmother can cross this. And then he kept marching. And by the time he gets to the Euphrates, he's thinking about this problem. And, and he, he comes across, as he's marching up, he comes across um, a place where a lady um, who used to rule Babylon um, hundreds of years before this, um, I have her name written down, um, it starts with an S. This, yes, Samarabis. I think that's the right name. She, she had wanted to, um, she wanted to sail, but there was nothing around to sail on. Uh, the river wasn't nice enough, I guess, and she wanted a, a calm lake. And so she had them build a, a lake and, and uh, divert some of the river into that lake. And it had dried up since then, so it wasn't really a thing. But, but when he's marching through, he sees kind of the channel that was um, already somewhat there, and, and he sees this lake, and he, he gets the idea he should do the same thing that he did with the Gendis. And so he digs, he digs the, or has his soldiers dig while, um, while the uh, Babylonians are throwing food at them and laughing and having a party. He's digging, and pretty soon the river is completely diverted, and they can walk through the riverbed. And, uh, and the only thing they have to overcome are the walls that are built up on either side of the river with the gates that would prevent them from getting into the city. But because of their drunken stupidity, the gates were unlocked. And so he's able to just march right in. And, and this is an interesting thing because it's not an accident. We know because of Daniel 2 that it's not an accident, but you can go back even farther. A hundred years before Cyrus, a guy named Isaiah gets a prophecy from God, and it's Isaiah chapter 44, verse 27, and it says this, "'Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd?' And he shall perform all my pleasures, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the, armors, the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And they weren't. They were open that night when Cyrus went in. God calls him by name, tells him how he's going to conquer. God predicted this in advance. God never gets it wrong. And, and that's something that should give us confidence because God, he's not trying to, he's not trying to get us. He, he's, he's not trying to like uh, mess with us or condemn us. God's goal is to save us. That's what He's working towards. And so when God, when God gets it right, it's in our favor. It's a good thing for us. 
And so, um, Daniel 5. Daniel 5 has these things. The Euphrates dries up. Does that sound familiar from what we read in Revelation? And then there's this kings from the east, the Medes and the Persians. Um, They march on the city of Babylon. The book of Isaiah calls Cyrus God's anointed. And the literal word in Hebrew is Mashiach. And what does that mean? Messiah. He's called the Messiah. Now, he's not the long-looked-for Messiah. Um, he's, the, uh, he, he's like an illustration of the coming Messiah. He, uh, because he comes to Babylon, he, he ends up freeing the Israelites. And so, in that way, he, he's the liberator or the Messiah of the Israelites for that moment. Um, and, and, of course, it's after he conquers that, these, that um, the people are able to return to the promised land. So, all of these things should they should ring true to what we're talking about from Revelation 16. In Revelation 16, 12, it says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl, and where did he pour the bowl? On the river Euphrates. Its waters were dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Does that sound familiar? Um, The Old Testament is connecting with the New Testament, and we're seeing parallels. And And the goal in John, the, uh, the, the writer of Revelation, the goal of Revelation is for us to be thinking about the story of the Old Testament when we read what it says there in the New Testament. So, in the Old Testament, these are literal cities, Babylon, literal rivers, Euphrates, literal kings, the Medes and the Persians. Uh, but John is pointing to something different. There's, there's two cities in the Bible, only really two that matter. There's Jerusalem, and then there's Babylon. Jerusalem is God's city, and Babylon is the city of confusion and spiritual deception. Um, Two cities, and in this case, God, through the Messiah, Cyrus, comes and liberates God's people from literal Babylon. In John's story in Revelation 16, it becomes a spiritual liberation of God's people from a spiritual Babylon. The, the focus is the same, but the application is in the spiritual realm and the global realm, not the physical local realm of Babylon. Keep reading. This is a verse that I didn't read to you before. Verse 19 is part of this prophecy, and it goes like this. The great city was divided into three parts, and the city of, cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her cup of uh, to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. So, do you see it? Armageddon is really not about a tiny little valley in Israel. Armageddon isn't about the Middle East. Armageddon is about a um, it, it's a using a literal valley uh, to point to a last day confusion that people would be experiencing spiritual confusion. And so, it's not a prophecy about literal Israel or even about literal Babylon. It's a prophecy that's specifically applied to me and you today. It's for us right here tonight. This is a story of God defeating spiritual Babylon so that you and I can find a heavenly promised land. Uh, John's using that collapse of Babylon by Cyrus to point to the collapse of spiritual Babylon by the Cyrus of the New Testament. Jesus, the Messiah. So, if this is the case, who do you think the kings from the east are? 
Who is this king from the east? Well, let me, let me take you to a Bible verse to tell you what the kings from the east are. And it's Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And let me just assure you that it's not just the Son of Man who's coming, that king, but it's also the Father and the Spirit that are coming with all of the heavenly angels with them. That's what the Bible describes. The kings from the east is the second coming of Christ and it's the liberation of God's people. That's the, the focus of this prophecy. And it's a, coming from the east, as, as you point out there. The, the prophecy says, I come as a thief. He is the Lord's anointed. Jesus is. Just like Cyrus was the Lord's anointed back in Babylonian days. So Armageddon, it's not about some little piece of real estate in Israel. Armageddon is about a spiritual battle. It's not about Russia. It's about my heart. And I want to tell you that the devil would really like it, like us, to think that it's some literal battle that's going to take place in some future time in some far-off place. Because if that's true, then you and I don't need to worry about it, do we? Someone else's problem some other time. But when it's a spiritual problem... It's about me, and it's something that, that really matters to me. The devil would really like us to not think it matters. Well, let's, let's just explore uh, these mountains for just a minute, because it's the valley of Megiddo in Israel, but the Bible talks about Har-Mageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. So John isn't asking us to think about the valley. He's asking us to think about one of those mountains, when you think about those mountains, you've got uh, Mount Tabor, the place where Jesus is transfigured. That's pointing to the second coming. And we saw Revelation 16 talking about the second coming. Uh, then you've got Mount Gilboa, where the Israelite king falls to the, the lies of the spirits of demons. And Revelation 16 talks about the spirits of demons and the deception that would be there. And, and then you've got Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is this, this huge moment in Israel's history. Uh, a king had uh, married a, uh, the priestess of Baal from some other country. God's king had married a false prophetess. And, and that combination was deadly to Israel. The result was that Israel ends up following Baal. And they end up having like 400 prophets of Baal and another 400 prophets of Ashtoreth led by the king's wife. Well, um, John he borrows the same language from Isaiah and from Daniel and from this story of, Mount, uh, of Elijah. Elijah, he's battling this marriage between God, God's truth and paganism, and he calls the people to a point of decision. He, he calls them to this mountain and he says, if Baal be God, then serve him. If God be God, then serve him. And, and then he asks for a showdown call fire down from heaven. And then he watches as these 400 um, uh, prophets try to, to uh, get Baal to drop fire from heaven. But does, does it work? No, it doesn't because Baal is not a god. But Elijah, as the day is wrapping up and as all their craziness, read the story, it is really crazy, as all the craziness comes to an end, Elijah says, all right, you're done. It's my turn. And at the risk of his own life, he's doing this, just so you know. And so he, he calls for them to bring water. 
prepares a sacrifice, dumps a bunch of water on it, and then in a very simple prayer just says, Lord, if you're God, send fire. And he, he prays a blessing on this sacrifice, and down comes fire from heaven. And it's at the end of the day, at the end of this story, um, Elijah says, look at the evidence, and he asks the people to make a decision. And he says this, um, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. He asks them to make a spiritual decision. This is the mountain of decision. Har-mageddon is not a battle in Israel. It's a battle for your and my hearts. And I think when we look at this story, this battle for the heart, we have to, we have to bring it home tonight. We, we, can't just, we can't just say, oh, that's interesting. You know, that's the fascinating prophecy. Thanks for telling me that, Jason. What we need to do when, when, when the Bible tells us something, what we need to do is we need to say one of two things. I don't quite understand it yet. Let me, let, me under, let me dig in a little bit more. I'm not quite sure of a few things. And that's an okay answer, as long as you go and dig a little bit more. Don't leave it there. Go and study. The second response, if, you, if it makes sense to you, if what we've studied from the Bible makes sense, the second response is to say, I believe it, God. And, and right now, the battle for the heart is to say, I surrender. And I will let God be God in my life. Revelation 19 points to this second coming of Jesus. And it says this about the second coming in verse 15 and 16. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on, it, on the horse was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges. He has those scales. Who is this? Who's on that white horse? It's Jesus. But then he says, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one except himself, knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, describing Jesus. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. In Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word of God is a two-edged sword that pierces into our innermost parts. The, the bone and the marrow gets deep inside us, is what it says. When Jesus comes, it won't matter what I say, it won't matter what you say, it won't matter what your pastor says, it only matters what the Word of God says. And I think that's something that we need to, we need to keep in mind. He keeps going, it says, um, they followed him on, on white horses, um, out of his mouth, I, I skipped that one, sorry about that. Um, and then wine, the winepress of his fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You notice that it says that God is angry? Just, just look at that. It says, um, um, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. God is angry? Is that a good thing for God to be angry? I think some of us would say that it's not a good thing. But of course he's angry. He's angry because what he intended isn't happening. What he wanted our lives to be just isn't because of sin and because of the problems in our world. We, we have ripped ourselves away from God and, and there's so much turmoil and trauma and evil in our world because of that choice. God is angry, but he's not angry at me or you. He's angry at what happens as a result of sin, and he's coming to provide a solution. I want to ask you, is there a reason that you would have to say no to Jesus when he comes to bring you his solution? Is there a reason that you would say no to him? I hope that tonight you can make a decision and say yes to Jesus. Uh, The moment, it can't be tomorrow. We've already looked and we've said, this is the time of the end. We're in the toenails of the image of Daniel chapter 2. We looked at the, the sorrows that were happening, right? The birth pangs. And we've seen that it's getting closer and closer together and more and more intense. This is the time just before Jesus coming. And even if Jesus takes another um, five or 10 or 500 years, um, you and I don't, we aren't promised tomorrow. And so the Bible encourages us today, today is the day of salvation. I'd like to pray with you. Father in heaven, I love how no detail escapes your attention, not even our future. And we can trust, because you've said all these other things that have happened, we can trust that Jesus is going to come soon. And tonight we find ourselves on that mountain of decision, forced to look at these alternatives. If you are God, or if someone else is. And the question we face is, where will we cast our allegiance? To the gods of this world or to the God of heaven? And so tonight our heads are all bowed, our eyes are closed. You can see in this room. And I want to ask, I want to ask that uh, for anybody who wants to say yes to God and give your allegiance to him, raise your hand. Raise your hand so the angels can see it. If your heart belongs to Jesus, just raise your hand and let heaven know. If your decision is the new Jerusalem, that heavenly city, and not Babylon, the city of confusion, then let them know. Lord, thank you for the people tonight that have chosen you. I know it's putting a smile on your face that heaven is rejoicing. These are the people that Jesus is going to come for. And most of all, Lord, I want to say, please come soon. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.